Um, do you have one of these, these John's Gospels uh, nearby you? I think there's one on every other seat. So if, you're, uh, if you don't have one next to you, perhaps you're sitting on a John's Gospel, um, uh, you're very welcome to take this away as a gift for yourself. This is our gift to you. It's one of the biographies of Jesus that kicks off the New Testament. You might know that the New Testament begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is one of uh, Jesus' closest companions called John, and he writes this account of Jesus, and it's the most famous piece of literature in human civilization. So, uh, I keep on saying this, but if you don't believe this is God's word, that's fine. Uh, At least respect it as some kind of literature that has shaped your world. Uh, It really has built civilizations, and it's transformed billions of lives. Um, So I hope that whets your appetite for John's Gospel, and I hope that I can share something with you uh, from John's Gospel that sparks an interest and you might want to start reading for yourself. Um, But our topic for today is, what is life, a tragedy or a comedy? Uh, And as I ask that question, I'm not asking you the question, is life a barrel of laughs? Like, we all know that life is not a barrel of laughs. It's, It's full of all kinds of trauma and suffering and darkness and pain, Uh, but I'm asking a slightly different question. Uh, You might know that in literature, a story that is a tragedy begins in joy and it ends in pain. Now that's what Dante, the author of the Divine Comedy, said. He said that a comedy is a story that begins in pain and ends in joy, and a tragedy is a story that begins in joy and ends in pain. And the way you can remember that is that uh, a comedy is shaped like a smile, right? You go down... And then you end on a high. A tragedy is the other way around. It's the frown. You climb up in the world and things look like they're going to be great and then it all falls apart. Tragic. So you might know in uh, Shakespeare. um, Shakespeare wrote 14 comedies. And you know they're comedies not so much because they make you laugh out loud. They didn't make me laugh out loud at school. uh, I remember my my teacher had to sort of tell me, you know, at such and such a point, Puck is making a joke. And I dutifully noted it down in my exercise book. Puck is apparently making a joke, you know. And as long as you said that in your exam, you'd pass. Um, So for Shakespeare, you know, it's not so much about the tone of the drama. It's not even about the gags. It's about the ending. In all 14 of Shakespeare's plays that are comedies, it ends with a wedding, or sometimes four weddings. Uh, And yet, if it's a tragedy, uh, the death count is monumental, and there's all sorts of bodies piled up on the stage, and the actors are trying desperately not to sort of breathe too uh, obviously on stage, because they've just had some kind of duel to the death. And it ends in a funeral, right? So if it ends in a wedding, it's a comedy. If it ends in a funeral, it's a tragedy. Right, so... What is life? Well, how does it end? Funeral, right? Doesn't end with a wedding, right? So what is life? Life is tragic. Life is tragic if there is no answer to the grave. That's my contention for this afternoon. And you might want to have all sorts of questions about that. We've got a Q&A session at the end of this, and you can fire your thorniest question my way, and I'll see if I can handle it. But my contention that it is that unless we have an answer to death, life is a tragedy. That doesn't mean that life is meaningless. Far from it. Hamlet is a very meaningful play. Some of uh, the greatest pieces of literature, some of the greatest films that have ever been made have been tragedies. They can be grand adventures, they can be full of meaning, uh, but if they end with death, then technically, that's a tragedy. Is life 
a tragedy or a comedy. I think the world wants to tell you that life is actually a tragedy. The story that the world tells you about this life is that we are, I don't know, biological survival machines. We are wet robots clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction. But Starbucks has a new flavored latte, so that's nice. You know, we're renovating the kitchen, so that's something to look forward to. And have you tried hot yoga? It's amazing. You know. And what, therefore, is life? Life is we try to climb up in the world and get as many experiences as we can. And we perform, and we achieve, and we accumulate, and we get on top, and we have our brief moment in the sun, and then we're over the hill, right? And then we tumble down into the grave. And like I say, that journey can be incredibly meaningful. It can be a grand adventure, but it is a tragedy, right? I think we know that the story the world tells us is a tragedy. We know this because we never want to get to the end of the story, do we? The way the world tells the story is that we we have this cult of youth. And we want to stay as far away from the end of the story as we can get. And so we just idolize youth and youthfulness, don't we? You know, all our billboards are just emblazoned with these images of 17-year-old models who look like 12-year-old girls who are trying to tell you how to fight the seven signs of aging, you know. Because we've got this cult of youth, we don't want to get to the end of the story because we think the story ends badly. I know that on Facebook, I never really hear about the elderly. As I'm scrolling through, I I hear about all sorts of news stories, but the elderly never cross my path unless they act like young people. So every now and again, I'll hear about the 70-year-old who runs the marathon, or the the 80-year-old who's into breakdancing, or the 90-year-old who's into speed dating, or something like that. Only when old people act like young people are we actually interested. It used to be that we would respect the elderly for their age and their wisdom and and, uh, and their grey hairs and their experience. They've been around the block a few times. Not so much anymore. Not so much anymore. And I think that is because we have convinced ourselves that life is an utter tragedy, and so we want to keep far from that ending to the story. Is life a tragedy or is life a comedy? Well, this book actually gives you hope for a comedy. In the midst of a world that will tell you that life is a tragedy, uh, this book has a a really unique structure to it. Uh, The Bible is actually shaped like a comedy, which is an extraordinary thing. Uh, It begins on high, there is a great fall, but then at the ending, there is actually a wedding. In one of the last chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, it describes the the ultimate happily ever after. There are four things that sort of make the happily ever after, and that's that the good guys win, the bad guys get their just desserts, there's a wedding, and you finish on a song. Revelation 19 is where you get the hallelujah chorus from. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And it's about the the wedding of God and his people. So according to the Bible, and against all expectations, we could finish with a wedding. Life could be a comedy. What do you think? Do you think that's true? Or do you think the grave swallows everything? Well, I think this gives us a great incentive to plunge down into John's Gospel and to figure out whether Jesus is bigger than death. Right? Because if Jesus is bigger than death, we've got hope. If he's not bigger than death, then I guess death wins. And that would be tragic. But if he's bigger than death, then maybe the, maybe the comedy is true. Should we have a look at the end of this story? On page 51, 
Uh, there's a famous story of a doubter who comes to believe in Jesus. Comes to believe that Jesus really is bigger than death. And he's the, the famous doubter called Thomas. Have you heard of Doubting Thomas before? This is his story on page 51. Thomas was not there on Easter Sunday when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. We don't know where he was. He was washing his hair, watching Netflix. Who knows what he was doing? He wasn't there. And so for an entire week, the other disciples are saying, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. And Thomas doubts. Because surely nothing is bigger than the grave, right? You know, death as a conqueror has never lost a battle. Billions of fights, death has never lost. And Thomas struggles to believe that Jesus could possibly have beaten death. So what happens? You'll see halfway down page 51, Jesus appears to Thomas. Little number 24 says, uh, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas is sort of setting the bar for proof. I don't know where you set the bar for proof when it comes to the question of God. Uh, I once asked an atheist friend of mine, what would make you believe in God? And he said, uh, well, if God would rearrange the stars in the sky to spell out the Ten Commandments, then I would believe. Where do you set the bar? My friend said it's to galactic heights, right? And as he said that to me, I, I had a couple of thoughts simultaneously, which is extraordinary for me. I, I usually average two thoughts, two thoughts per month. But uh, I had a couple of coffees, so and miracles do happen, as we're about to see. And the first thought that I had as a response was just to, to tell him, you know, the current arrangement of the stars is already miraculous. The current arrangement of the stars beggars belief. We'll think about that in a second. But... The current arrangement of this universe and the existence of a skeptic to see that universe is already a miracle, orders of magnitude more improbable than stars spelling out Hebrew letters. That was my first thought to say to him. You you, you don't need to wonder what you would do in the face of a miracle. You're living in one. That was my first thought to say to him. But I I didn't say that to him. Instead, I preferred the second line of response. And I, I said to him, would you like such a God? A God who rearranges the stars in order to tell you to behave. Would you like such a God? Would you warm to such a God? And his response was intense and instant. He said, no, I could never like God. But if he proved his existence to me, then I guess I would have to bow. And at that stage, me and my friend had a lot of common ground. uh, Because the God he was talking about, I didn't believe in either. The God he was talking about sounded like a brute to me. A God who simply spells out his commandments in the sky and simply wants you to bow the knee. Uh, that's not really what I was talking about. It's interesting here. Thomas doesn't want to see stars. Thomas wants to see scars. That's very different, isn't it? He wants to see that Jesus is battle-scarred from his fight with death. That's a funny thing to to want, isn't it? He doesn't just want some kind of divine apparition. He doesn't just want some kind of assurance that life beats death. He wants Jesus to prove his love, a love that had taken him to hell and back, the scars of his crucifixion. That's what he wants to see. 
Because he wants to see that Jesus has gone through death and out the other side. Any kind of God who remains distant from us, who remains above the fray, that's not going to convince Thomas. He wants the kind of God who has stooped and served and suffered and bled and died and then risen. That's the kind of God that would convince Thomas. Not a God of the stars, a God of the scars. That's a different kind of God, don't you think? A God who actually enters into our tragedy. That's a different God. Well, what's going to happen? In verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I I love this. Uh, The other weekend, all his followers had deserted, denied, and betrayed him. They'd all left him for dead, right? (laughs) They deserted, denied, and betrayed the Son of God. They left him to his fate. He was crucified alone. And now he tracks them down from beyond the grave. What's he going to do? These worthless friends who sold him out for dead. What's he going to do? He says, peace. Peace. Beautiful, isn't it? Uh, This is the kind of God we're talking about. A God who tracks down worthless followers (laughs) and says, peace to you. Peace to you. That's why he went through death and out the other side. To bring us home. To bring us to that peace. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. It's a famous statement of faith. Thomas sees that Jesus truly is Lord. But what is it that convinces him? It's not the stars, it's the scars. What's he looking at as he professes that Jesus is Lord and God? He's looking at wounds. What an interesting Lord. What an interesting God. The kind of God who would actually take on our tragedy in order to offer us his comedy. And he's overwhelmed by this apparition of Jesus. I wonder what it would take for you to be overwhelmed. I wonder what it would take for you to believe, to start saying, Jesus, you are Lord and you are God. Uh, Well, in the Bible... The way it happens is you become convinced that he beat death. Because in the Bible, uh, either death is Lord or Jesus is Lord. Right? Death is Lord in that, I don't know if you play computer games or anything, but uh, you know, in computer games you get through the, the level and you get to the end and there's a big bad boss and you've got to take on the big bad boss. And then if you get past the big bad boss, you get to level 2 and then level 3, level 4, level 5. And then at the top of level 10, there is the ultimate big bad boss. It's triple-headed and it's a, you know, electrocuting and it's just radioactive and you know, thermonuclear. And if you beat that big bad boss, then you are the champion. According to the Bible, death is that big bad boss. Never lost a battle. Never lost a battle. And the Bible presents this stark truth. Either death is Lord, or maybe, maybe there has been a victor in that fight. Maybe someone has beaten death and come back to tell us about it. Could you possibly believe that? I want to point to three things that might make you believe, and then we'll throw it open to discussion. Three things that might, might make you believe that Jesus did indeed beat death. The heavens, history, and him. Okay? Three things that might make you believe. The heavens, history, and him. Okay, first of all, the heavens. I think the heavens are already telling you that there is a life from the dead God. The heavens are already telling you that there is an Easter kind of a God. 
A God who brings life from the dead. I'll point to three miracles that you already believe in. Okay? You already believe that everything has come from nothing. Right? That's what you already believe. That sounds like a life from the dead kind of a miracle, don't you think? I mean, you probably don't like it being called a miracle if you're not a Christian, right? Um, you know, I, I as a Christian believe in the miracle of the virgin birth. I, I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Um, but actually, the, the secular miracle is that the universe was born of a virgin, right? And yet, there was no virgin, right? <laughs> there, there is a virgin birth of the cosmos. Everything has come from nothing. The scientific consensus is that there has been a beginning to the universe. Everything has come from nothing. This is the virgin birth of the cosmos without a virgin. It's the ultimate magic trick. Nothing up the sleeve, no sleeve, no magician, just pure magic out of nowhere. And for no reason. Now, we all believe that in this room. We all believe that everything's come from nothing. It's just I happen to believe in a God of life from the dead. I happen to believe in a miracle maker who makes sense of the miracle that you already believe in. Take away this God of Easter, this God of life from the dead, and actually you're left with more improbabilities and more absurdities, not less. So the second thing I point to uh, with regards to the heavens is everything's come from nothing, but also order has come from chaos. So if we have come from a big bang, this is an extraordinary kind of explosion, isn't it? It's an incredibly orderly explosion, don't you think? You know, when you were a kid and your mum told you that your room looked like a bomb hit it, she was not complimenting you on how orderly your room was, okay? It looked like chaos, right? That's usually what happens with explosions, and yet we seem to be living in an incredibly orderly explosion. And you can study this explosion, you can, you can look at the fact that we have exploded at just the right velocity. You see, if we, if we exploded too fast, we'd fling out into heat death. And if we exploded too slow, we'd crunch back in on ourselves. We happen to have exploded just right. This Goldilocks range. And then you ask the question, well, how narrow is this Goldilocks range? Because if we go too far this way, heat death. Too far that way, big crunch. We're right here. How narrow is this Goldilocks range that we happen to be in? And you can crunch the numbers, and uh, it turns out that this, this number, the cosmological constant, has to be correct to 1 in 10 to the power 120. Okay? 1 in 10 to the power 120. Uh, 10 to the power 120 is a, is a 1 with 120 zeros after it. This is an extraordinary number. There are only 10 to the power 80 atoms in the universe. This is 1 in 10 to the power 120. So... There has been this explosion. We happen to be poised on a knife edge. And sometimes people say to me, Ah, yes, but Glenn, there are trillions of planets out there, and I know that this Earth is poised on a knife edge, but there must be one planet out there that would be just right for life. No, 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 that's not the argument. The argument is not that planet Earth is poised on a knife edge. The argument is that the cosmos is poised on a knife edge. Absolutely poised on a knife edge. The only cosmos that we have access to, the only universe that we can actually scientifically observe, is poised on an absolute knife edge. How do you account for that? I, as a Christian, I happen to think there's a life from the dead kind of God who quite likes life, who quite likes there to be life from the dead. And so I've got a miracle maker that makes sense of the miracle. Do you have a miracle maker to make sense of this miracle? You take away the God of Easter, and actually you're left with more absurdities. So the third thing I point to with the heavens, we've got uh, everything's come from nothing, order has come from chaos, and life has come from non-life. So how have we got life 
on planet Earth? From inorganic chemicals? How, how does that sort of happen? When we try really hard and spend lots of energy and intelligence and money on trying to make it happen in a, in a test tube, we, we can't do it. And yet, has it happened by accident? Has it happened with no one even trying? Life coming from non-life? That's an extraordinary thing to have happened. Life coming from non-life. A really extraordinary thing to have happened. I happen to believe that on Easter Sunday, life came from non-life. The non-living Jesus came back from the grave. And I'll absolutely put my hand up and say that's a miracle. That's a miracle. And I'm unashamed to say that that's a miracle. But that's a miracle orders of magnitude more likely than all life appearing from non-life. How do you explain that miracle? Actually, the God of Easter doesn't make your world more full of absurdities and improbabilities. The God of Easter explains what would otherwise be absurd and totally improbable. So I would say the heavens themselves are declaring to you that there is a, a life from the dead kind of a God. And then secondly, I point to history. Uh, history will tell you that there is a life from the dead God. Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of the Father, full of the Holy Spirit, he was there before the world began, and he entered into history, into time and space, so that we can get to know him, so that we can study him. And as Jesus came, here are some facts of history that everyone can agree to, whether you're Jewish, Christian, agnostic, atheist, whatever you believe. Um, here, here are the facts. Jesus was born around the year dot. He had a whole bunch of followers. He was known to be a miracle worker. He was known to teach that he was a key figure in the kingdom of God coming. He caused a controversy in the temple area in Jerusalem around AD 30. He was put on trial both, both by the Jewish authorities and by the Roman authorities. He was found guilty under a capital charge. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was killed. The body was placed in a tomb that everybody knew the whereabouts of. And then three days later, that tomb was empty. The body was never found. And Jesus' followers, like the ones we just read about, had experiences of the risen Christ that went on for 40 days. And some of those experiences were with 500 people present. Some of those ex experiences were over meals and that kind of thing. They went on for 40 days. And then those resurrection appearances, those experiences of a resurrection appearance, stopped dramatically after 40 days when Christians say Jesus returns to heaven. So those are the facts of history, and then you've got to explain them. You know, what is it that explains that history? And people have had a go at trying to explain that history uh, without belief in the resurrection. And you could believe that perhaps, I don't know, Jesus swooned on the cross, he didn't quite die, and he was laid in the cool of the tomb, and he sort of revived this semi-crucified man who somehow rolled the huge stone away, overpowered the guard, and appeared to his followers, giving them a great sense of resurrection life, you know, in this semi-crucified state. And that's where Christianity came from. You, you could believe things like that. Uh, but I, I find those ways of accounting for the data more improbable and more absurd. You see, if Jesus is who he says he is, then I would find it absurd if he didn't rise from the dead. If the God who brought life from the dead came into our dying world, I would find it extraordinary if he too succumbed to death. I just find it, I just find it more in keeping with the facts to believe that this Jesus, who is who he claims to be, that's what I believe, that he did indeed beat death. And then, when we're thinking about the history point, we're also thinking about 
the history of the world since that first century, and the history of the world since that first century also points to the truth of resurrection. We've thought about the Big Bang already. Uh, Think about the church as an expanding universe. Uh, It is the the largest sociological phenomenon the world has ever seen, the most diverse sociological phenomenon the world has ever seen. Uh, Billions of people believe today, and and there'll be more people believing tomorrow than there were today. And then the next day we're going to beat that record, the next day we're going to beat that record, the next day we're going to beat that record. might not feel that way in the West, but I promise you, globally, Christianity is an expanding universe. Okay, well, trace things back to the Big Bang. Bring it all back. When was time zero? When was the Big Bang? And, and everyone can agree, in about AD 30, something happened. Some explosion of life turned fools like Thomas into men of flaming courage who turned the world upside down. You know, Thomas went on to be a missionary to India, taking the gospel further afield. And people like Peter, and Peter just comes off like the, the biggest moron in, in, in these books. And somehow he becomes the chief spokesman and this unlettered, untaught, penniless peasant starts shooting his mouth off about the resurrection and suddenly thousands start believing and it starts multiplying, going viral throughout the world. What is it that accounts for history? Why are we even talking about Jesus 2,000 years later? If he's just a teacher who died on Good Friday, why are we even, you know, thousands of people were crucified. Why are we even talking about this penniless preacher? Well, maybe he's more than a penniless preacher. And maybe Good Friday wasn't the end. To me, that makes the most sense of the data. So we've had the heavens tell you that Easter is true. History tells you that Easter is true. And then, and then just him. Him. I've already said how I became a Christian. I, I became a Christian really studying through these gospel accounts and encountering the person of Jesus. And the way it works is it's a little bit like you know when kids play the game, which superhero would win? You know how kids sometimes say, you know, who would win in a battle between Batman and Spider-Man? You know, well, Batman's like this, but Spider-Man would be like that. And they, and they weigh up the various strengths of these uh, two contestants. And I guess how it happens personally in your life is you bring to mind death as the ultimate bad guy, and you face it in all its tragic glory, and you say, yes, it's never lost a battle, but then somehow you, you meet this figure called Jesus, and you start to ask the question, do I think this guy might be bigger than death? Is that what explains history? Is that what explains the heavens? Maybe, maybe, maybe this guy of such towering personality and stooping love, maybe this guy who would actually become a battle-scarred warrior for me, maybe... Maybe he's Lord. Maybe he's God. And at that stage, you start to believe that the comedy is true. That the funeral is not the end. That a wedding banquet awaits. Could that be true? Well, turn over the page, because after Thomas says, my Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, you might, you might think... I. I wish I could have a Thomas experience, right? And Jesus says, actually, it's better if you don't have a Thomas experience. It's better if you don't base your life on one apparition of Jesus. It's much better that way. 
And we, we don't tend to think that way. We tend to think, Glenn, you know, it's interesting all that stuff about the Big Bang and whatever, but if you could just produce Jesus, you know, that would be enough. You know, wouldn't that be something? You know, financial conduct authority on a, on a Tuesday lunchtime. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus of Nazareth. And in he came. And you would think, oh, that's what I want. Is it, though? Is it? Okay, so Jesus arrives and he shows you his hand and his side. He assures you of his love that's taken him to hell and back for you. That would give you the biggest spiritual high for about a week, I reckon. But you know what you'd have to do? You'd have to go back to the workstation <laughs> and you'd have to tell your friends and colleagues what happened this lunchtime. Yeah, yeah, Jesus was there. Um, what was he like? Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. And you know what your friends would say? They'd say, they do it with mirrors. They do it with mirrors, you gullible fool. And within a week, you'd need to see him again. And then again. And then again. And then again. We say we want these moments. But actually, moments are very fleeting. Jesus offers us something better. He says, there's a more blessed way to come to know him. And that's how the passage continues. It just says that under the heading, The Purpose of John's Gospel... This flows straight on. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? This has been written to give you a Thomas experience. And it's actually better that it's written down here in black and white, because this is still true at three in the morning when you lost your job, lost your girlfriend, lost your health. This is still there. You can still turn to this. I encountered Christ in the Gospels all those years ago, and it's a rock-solid foundation for faith because I keep on returning here, and he keeps on meeting me here. We say we want the apparitions, but the apparitions are just fleeting. Don't you want an earth's faith, a grounded faith? Pick up one of these John's Gospels and keep reading. And why don't you shoot up a prayer and you just say, God of life from the dead, show yourself. Yeah? a no-lose proposition. If he's not there, he's not going to show himself. But if he is there, he wants to encounter you. And then you can meet Jesus. Him. And he will convince you that life is greater than death. So what is life? Is it a tragedy or is it a comedy? Well, if the grave is the end, it might be a grand adventure. But it is a tragic story. What if Jesus beat death? It's worth investigating, don't you think?